Welcome to The Right Voices. My name is Drew Bond and I'm the president and CEO of C3 Solutions and your host for today's interview. C3 Solutions is a nonprofit educational organization dedicated to expanding economic freedom and accelerating energy innovation for the purpose of addressing our world's greatest climate, energy, and environment challenges. You can learn more about us at c3solutions.org. You can also subscribe to our free online newsletter at c3newsmag.com, and there we'll keep you updated with the latest innovations and free market policies on all things climate, energy, and the environment. So today's interview, we've got a special guest with us, uh, the Honorable uh, Aurelia Giacometto. And Aurelia is the CEO of the International Order of T. Roosevelt, a proactive conservation foundation which is focused on protecting at-risk wildlife and habitats through heritage, educating our youth, and also through ingenuity through science and stewardship. Uh, Aurelia and I got to meet at an event not long ago at the Steamboat Institute and uh, really enjoyed getting to know her and her background. Uh, she's got just an incredible background of experience uh, that I'll let her tell you about. Um, and so I feel like she's probably the, the best person to introduce herself. And I just really look forward to this conversation. So really, how are you today? I'm fantastic, Drew. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and it was a great pleasure. You were the moderator on a panel that we were talking about. Everything always seems to travel back to the environment, environmental stewardship, um, and so that's what I'm doing at my my new role um, as CEO, but it all builds upon my foundation. So my background is that I have a master's in molecular genetics. Um, I worked at a leading biotech company, Monsanto, which is now Bayer, um, and that was focused on regulatory environmental stewardship. And then that parlayed, um, if you can actually parlay into a a legal background, but was working on a project where we weren't able to use the science in order to improve the ways that we were um, growing crops in order to have better technologies. Um, And so I figured that the best way for me to take advantage of the science, the best science in the world, is to make sure that we have laws and regulations in place that allow us to use that science. So that's how I ended up getting a law degree. Um, and then with that, that background was able to serve the American people, really proud of that role as being the 22nd director of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And I feel that I'm still carrying that flag into my new role is understanding that we can have healthy environments, healthy ecosystems and populations of wildlife at the same time as being able to develop our natural resources, which is part of those ideals that Teddy Roosevelt had. And so it's an honor and a pleasure to be here and talk to you about it. Yeah, just, I mean, what an incredible background, the the legal background, the scientific background, and now having an understanding of the policy, uh, specifically at the Fish and Wildlife Service. So and our, our country was was lucky to have you in that role, and uh, and so I'm I'm just so interested to learn about the the T Roosevelt Order. Um, so tell us more about what that organization is. Uh, obviously, has some some uh, some honorable founding roots, uh, but uh, give us some more information and background on it. So I'm I'm really excited. We are a nonprofit 501c3 uh, 
organization. And so my board is an exceptional um, group of 14 individuals. And so what they are there, I call them titans in the world of business. So our president is Wesley Bates. Uh, his father, him and his father, they founded Stanley Steamer. Um, and that type of caliber is what you, what is at the is the board of International Order of T. Roosevelt. So the success that they have seen in the business world is what is being applied to the conservation world. And so, Drew, as C3 is focused on um, capital markets, it's the same ideal that you see when it comes to conservation. And the way that you have conservation, the way that you make it sustainable is looking at it as a corporation, as a company. Because if people see the value that goes into protecting wildlife, protecting their habitats, making it something that's sustainable into the future, then they're willing to invest second and third and fourth and fifth times. And that's what we wanna see. We see that there's a value um, and we want the people um, that see the projects. We just launched our initial five flagship projects. I'll quickly run through what they are. Um, it's the recovery of sage grouse. Um, sage grouse is a bird that has habitat in 11 states. Um, it's it's estimated their, that their population is around 3,500. Um, they used to inhabit over 150 million acres. And now um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, for example, um, has been sued a couple years ago for not listing the greater sage grouse. And so all our work is to do preventative actions to make sure that these at-risk species aren't listed. Because if they are listed, then that means that those lands can't be used for other uses, such as oil and gas, um, mining, agriculture, ranching, and even getting outdoors for recreation and hunting. And so we know that you can use science to support balanced uses or multiple uses on these lands. Another project that we have is the Louisiana black bear. That bear was listed as threatened and was on the endangered species list for over 20 years. And so in 2016, um, it was a magnificent day to have that bear delisted. Um, and then there was a lawsuit that was filed that there was lack of genetic diversity. So we are partnered with the Louisiana Department of Fisheries and Wildlife to address the genetic diversity, the migration corridors to make sure that that bear stays off the list um, and other activities such as that. We are working with, uh, we're working on the Roosevelt elk and we're seeing that the overgrowth that's happening um, in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon, Washington, California, that that is um, encroaching on the types of habitat that's conducive for the Roosevelt elk, which is resulting in lower reproductive rates. And so when you see when you have lower reproductive rates, um, then that means that that's a bad sign for the population. And knowing that Oregon and those in Washington and California are huge states for recreation, outdoors and hunting, that's a huge devastation when it comes to conservation to see those types of activities. And then our other two projects um, is education for conservation. So education on hunting, fishing, archery, working with two partners on that front to educate our youth 
but then also finding out ways that if once they're educated, how do we increase the accessibility to get youth educated on gun safety, on hunting safety. So then when they actually got into the field that they've been properly properly educated and trained. And then our last one, which is really dear to my heart is anti-poaching canine units um, that uh, there's a wonderful facility at the, it's the Ikowitz Family Foundation. Um, they're based out of South Africa. They have the largest breeding and training facility. Um, they're combating poaching of elephants, of rhinos, of pangolins, um, not only in South Africa, but they're also taking on other cases um, in Asia as well. And so we're partnered with them. Each of our projects, they're huge projects. Um, They're over a million dollars average each on an annual basis. Um, And it's working with um, corporations. It's working with people, working with people that are listening, that they're the ones that can make a difference in the world of conservation. Yeah, so that, that's what I was going to ask you. Just in terms of the business model, I mean, so you you work off of donations from corporations and individuals, and they fund your operations, and they they also can fund specific projects. It sounds like that's exactly right. It's um, because we understand that when it comes to conservation, when it's wildlife, when it's our lands, that we all have a responsibility when it comes to conservation, and so people can get involved. We understand, and when you're asking about what's the business model. We see this as an investment, as a value. And so when you're investing with us, we do give um, annual reports on what's happening, what's the update, what your money has gone to and the difference that it's making. Um, and so that's that's how we keep people informed. Um, we have our website, which is www.t-roosevelt.org. Um, and that's where you'll find updates Um, of our projects. We also have Instagram and other social media platforms to keep people updated and informed. That's great. That's great. So, so let's talk about conservation because I mean, this is, this is your space. You know, this probably better than anybody. Um, I mean, what is the state of conservation in the U S today? And are we kind of moving in the right direction or the wrong direction? I mean, there's, there's so much new, you know, if you watch the news, you think, you know, the, the world is falling apart and in some ways it is, but, you know, I, I, I know that they often report, you know, the bad, not the good. And so I'm just kind of curious to hear your opinion on the state of conservation in the U.S. today. I, if, if you take a step back and look at where we have progressed over the decades, um, in the 1960s and the 1970s, you had the environmental movement where you had agencies such, in the, such as the environmental Um, protection agency that was created. You had environmental laws that were created, such as the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, um, the Clean Air Act. And so as we develop our resources, we've seen that there's progress that that we make and how do we make sure that we're protecting our environment as well as having our industries as well. And that is continuing today. So I say, as we learn more, that there's still so much that we have been able to progress. And that's an example of of why the International Order of T. Roosevelt and other organizations have been created is we see that there's a need and let us be able to fill that need. And we know that people are part of that solution and finding that solution. And so that's why um, I'm happy to be able to talk to you today about, about what we're doing. So I see the state of, as we continue um, to advance, that we see new needs pop up and being able to provide solutions for those needs. And so it's as 
you'll see in our mission statement, we talk about our heritage as well as our ingenuity. And it's being able to think outside of the box for those solutions. And so I see the state of conservation continuing to to do good things um, to protect our wildlife and their lands. Yeah. And what about the, the, the laws? I mean, you mentioned sort of some of the history of the laws that are on the books. Um, and, you know, I know that, you know, laws can have obviously good impacts and sometimes unintended bad impacts. And so from a conservation standpoint, are there are there barriers that 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 keep conservation from happening uh, and improving in the United States that uh, where we need more laws or are there or there actual barriers where the law is is the barrier? Let's just try to unpack that for me a little bit, if you could. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take the Endangered Species Act for for an example. Um, and so when that one was established, it was understanding that in some cases there, there were exploitation of our wildlife. Um, there wasn't consideration of maybe about having a balanced approach for multiple uses of the land. And so there was great intent when these laws were created. And as time has gone on, those laws as they stand have been manipulated in such ways that it prevents their actual, the use of their actual intent, of the original intent. Um, for example, um, when I was, when, you know, at the Department of Interior at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, there's so-called environmental groups that frequently will sue the department, will frequently sue the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on species. And it's, and because of the way that the laws are set up, um, they're based on timelines, not about the merits. And because there's a quick turnaround and there's over 1,600 species that are listed on the endangered species list, it takes decades to get something off the list and millions of dollars. So when you think of that being for one species and you have 16 listed, there becomes a, you know, a limited amount of resources in order to apply to that. So when you have groups that sue um, in order in the name of these species, um, it ends up that sometimes that money doesn't go back into the field to protect those species. And you find out that it's used as a campaign mechanism for them just to grow the organization. Um, and so, yes, there is the original intent of the law that was created to help the species, but it has now been used in a negative way that that doesn't fulfill that intent. Um, and so the laws that are on the books um, are, are there. I wouldn't say that it's having more laws. I would say reverting back to the original intent, having a good heart and saying, okay, we know why it was used. Let's apply the money that we've gotten to go back into the field to help get the species off the list. Yeah. Yeah. And what about private property rights? I mean, I'm sure that plays into this. Uh, I mean, your organization, uh, I mean, you're a nonprofit, right? Not a government organization. And so you're working I would, with, with private property owners. Uh, how important are private property rights to your, your to conservation, uh, I guess, really is the question. Extremely important. Ab- absolutely. Um, and so for example, Back to back to endangered species. So, again, you have over 1,600 on the list, um, and the habitat for those species 
about 60% of that habitat is on private land. And so animals, wildlife, um, plants, they don't know, they don't see the boundary lines between what's public or what's private land. And so it's working in concert with anyone that has uh, that has skin in the game. So that is private landowners. It's being able to know that, that that's their right. Some of them, that's working lands for them. But it's finding what are those solutions that will enable, for example, a species to be recovered, as well as making sure that they're able to use their land for working for working lands or whatever other use that they have because it's because it's theirs. So private land is extremely, extremely important. And it helps to have those conversations and bringing people to the table to figure out how does conservation, you know, what are incentives? and figure out it's it's that free it's the free market because it works better to have it as a free market and incentives than have regulations that restrict people that will be less likely to figure out coming to the table to find a solution yeah yeah well, that is uh, it's just so well said i mean and, and i think you know so often these days free markets actually have a bad name so it's it's really interesting that there's a a free market oriented organization that is helping to promote conservation um so we, you know which leads me to to kind of thinking about for for those in in the in the united states you know it could be younger generations right uh, regardless of age really but i would imagine there's a lot of younger folks that Care about conservation, um, maybe have some free market instincts, but but you know are always seeing the pathways to being able to 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 kind of live out their their values. And and so I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, if if I'm a young conservative or you know independent libertarian, you know, free market oriented type person, how do how do I get involved? What can I do to help? Um, you know, uh, I think there's a, there's a definitely a need there, but I mean, what can people do to help? Um, volunteer. I, I'll say go go to our website. We're always we're always looking for people who want to get involved, um, and either get involved with 4-H, um, going to. I mean, I used to volunteer at our local veterinarian clinic because I just wanted to to be around animals. Uh, state agencies are always looking for um, volunteers to come out. Um, I used to always do cleanups um, that were happening in the neighborhood or, or not that far away. Um, so there's different ways to get involved, to get exposure, um, taking classes. Um, and one thing that I, I do also want to mention about our projects, um, this goes for um when we're looking at companies, because we mentioned companies, we also talked about private landowners. Companies and corporations are a key piece of this as well. Um, because of their operations, sometimes they do have a, a pretty big footprint and they're important to our economics here um, in, in the U.S. And under that umbrella with our projects, we we want to ensure that there's ways for them to be able to operate. And so our projects fall under the ESG, the environment, social and governance, as well as the corporate social responsibility. So people are looking at how do we find ways that we're doing good in the areas that we're operating in, such as corporate 
uh, citizenship. And these projects fall right in line with the biodiversity, with the environmental piece as well. And so we're able to provide those solutions to say, yes, please continue to operate. And we have a solution that fits under your umbrella for ESG or CSR. So I, that that is so interesting and such an important point. So I just want to make sure that I that I understand it correctly because, as you know well, I mean the ESG movement um, is is getting a lot of traction. It has uh, you know it, it it has sort of you know some good elements about it and also some not so good elements about it, right? And and I think it's it's one of those things again if taken to an extreme, you know, if a, a company exists in order to create a product that has value to society, right? And 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 so, you know, this is a whole nother topic of conversation, but but I think it's an important one because um, you know, ESG really has become kind of the you know the flag of of activists uh, for sort of pushing their agenda through corporate America, through the free markets. But what I'm hearing you say is, hey, if if you're going to uh, sort of live out your ESG values. Here's a way to do it from a free market perspective by helping partnering with the International Order of T. Roosevelt, or you know, and on projects that specifically um, enact and implement conservation. I mean, am I getting that right? Help me understand because that, that that's just this is such a hot topic, and I think really important. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. So um, some of some environmental groups are using wildlife, they're using their habitats as ways to stop companies from being able to develop um, or giving to these organizations that fulfill a CSR or or an ESG component. So sometimes those are like the, they're small things. And so for us, we're saying, we're saying, okay, we understand you have this ESG component that you have to fulfill for reporting, um, but let's do it in such a way that it's beneficial, that you're not just setting aside lands that you don't touch. You can, you can, you can be able to operate and have a good positive environment for, um, for the wildlife. And so, for example, I'll name our, I'll mention our sage grouse project right now um, in those western lands where this bird is found in eleven states. For example, the Bureau of Land Management is looking to um, have 10 million premier, 10 million acres that are premier lands for oil and gas development and for mining to say, hey, this is going to be completely undisturbed because the population is so low. And our project, within our fourth year, we're going to be introducing 50,000 sage grouse into the field. So there's not going to be a question of there's not enough birds. There's now enough birds. And because there's enough birds, it's not a question then of we have to hold off or have lands declared undisturbed for oil and gas or mining. These are projects that you're that companies can invest in, that they can then see a return because they can still operate in those areas. Yeah, uh, that's just uh, such an incredible work that you guys do. And I'm so glad to learn about your organization. I, I really, really hope that uh, that you guys continue to grow. Uh, I mean, it's just, it, it really is kind of, to me, the perfect kind of public-private partnership. Uh, I mean, there's, people throw that word around a lot, um, but in terms of, uh, you know, a, a free market-oriented, you know, 
a nonprofit organization working with individuals, private property right, you know, owners, landowners, and and corporations to sort of do conservation in a way that works for everybody. Uh, I'm just so impressed. So, so thank you. Thank you for all that you guys do. Well, thank you, Drew, so much for having me. Um, thank you to your listeners. And if anyone wants to find out more, please visit us at www.t-roosevelt.org. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Aurelia Giacometto, uh, CEO of International Order of T. Roosevelt, thank you. Thank you again for your time. Again, uh, for folks listening, please uh, check out their organization uh, and, uh, and, and, and support them uh, with your time and your treasure. So uh, again, for our listeners and our audience out there, thank you for listening. Um, this has been A Right Voices with Aurelia Giacometto of the International Order of T. Roosevelt. And uh, until next time, please uh, follow us on c3newsmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter and let us know if you have topics or any interesting organizations, CEOs, innovations that you want to hear about. So have a great day and uh, God bless. Thanks. Thanks.